Oh, you just want the wisdom bonus. Yes, that's exactly correct. Dangerous Map Room in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 118 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to make your campaign world realistic and responsive to your players. But first, the rogue traders stick their nose in some warpy stuff in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the Stone Shaper gets in touch with their inner plane in the Character Creation Forge. So before we move on to our main topic, I want to give everybody an update on Xanathar's Guide. So that is the player supplement that Wizards of the Coast is planning to release on November 21st. And then keeping in line with the previous releases, it gets like a special edition cover and pre-release at certain stores on November 10th. So our plan is to get our hands on it as quickly as we can uh, right after that early release date. Read the whole thing, record an episode where we review it, and then get it up for you on November 16th. It's going to be a tight schedule. I think we can do it. Um, we have previously reviewed Sword Coast Adventures Guide. We did Volo's Guide last year. So we're looking forward for, I don't know, a threefer. Uh, and of course, Xanathar's is going to include, uh, probably maybe most exciting for us, at least 25 new subclasses. Every class is going to get at least two more. Uh, except for Wizard, which is only getting one, but they already have eight, so fine. Uh, yeah, and Rogue, which is getting recycled ones from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guy, but that's okay. Yeah, I think it's uh, to help people who are playing Adventurer's League and have to do PHB plus one books, but, you know, the rest of us kind of lose out a little bit. But it does seem like there's going to be plenty of new content, which also means that if you have something that you've been wanting to see in the Character Creation Forge, or you have a suggestion... Um, it may be that we haven't done it because there wasn't really a way to do it. So with all of this new uh, info, it might be an opportunity for us to revisit some things we've kind of put on the back burner. So just let us know. All right, moving on to the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign, which is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And it is eight years after the crew of the His Enduring Light uh, had their escapades on Gauntle Grimm. And they have now stumbled across an Imperial Chartist vessel that is stranded upon a warp reef deep within the Empyrean. Yeah, uh, we've been at this rogue tradering now for quite a few more years. Um, Silva Lionheart has settled into her role as fake rogue trader. Um, She's giving a lot more orders now, even though she knows she's not really supposed to, but we can't really tell her no in front of other people. Yeah, she's kind of becoming a competent rogue trader and a valued member of the crew, really. Yeah, which is the last thing we wanted, okay? Because she's just supposed to be a pawn. Right. <laughs> uh, you also, while your profit factor, like, statistic has not increased, um, if you recall, you were quite poorly outfitted at the very beginning. You were very much a decrepit, old uh, Rogue Traderly crew. Uh, you were down at one point to two transports on board the vessel. Uh, you now have a full equipment and complement uh you now have you know sufficient numbers of armsmen and and those sorts of things to where you're no longer 
uh, cash-strapped and bootstrapping your way across the Imperium. Yeah, I think this is the time when you actually told us, okay, right now, the way you look and the way that you can operate, people will actually look at you and go, oh, those are rogue traders. Right. Whereas before, we were just uh, garbage people with nice hats. Yeah, you were, you know, little brother wearing dad's tie. <laughs> All right, so we are here to rescue a ship that is caught on a warp reef. Um, we seem to recall that we've tried to do a rescue mission before and it didn't go so well. So we're being very, very cautious. Yeah, for one, you don't go running in foolhardily. You actually make Vox contact with them before, uh, within 40k lore, ships in the warp that are stranded are incredibly dangerous. Uh, a lot of times they become space hulks and become home to Xenos and Chaos and various things. And uh, typically the Imperium sends space marines in, highly trained space marines to go deal with those things. Look, it's totally fine as long as they haven't lost main power and the Geller field that keeps the demons at bay is still fully intact. So no big deal. Right, because the warp is naturally full of sort of chaos energy and psychic energy and demons and, you know, kind of th this is where the chaos gods are most able to affect mortals. It's sort of their domain. But the Geller field keeps all of those things like safely beyond its little bubble. Right, named naturally after Sarah Michelle Geller, who has always been very good at keeping demons at bay. Uh, way back in the uh, first millennium. Nope, second millennium. Nope, third millennium. <laughs> she was augmentically enhanced. <laughs> it was just her head on a robot body. Right. <laughs> okay, so we do some initial scans, and the Geller field is totally intact, right? Uh, well, it is totally intact in the bridge. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, a few rooms... On a ship that's about two kilometers long. Correct. Awesome. Yeah. So we leave. Screw this. We're gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be the wise thing to do, but not the sporting thing to do. Not the greedy thing to do. <laughs> right. So you let curiosity get the better, and you established a Vox link. Uh, basically, you wanted to talk with whomever was in the bridge, and you found that this Chartist vessel uh, and its captain were in the employ of Lord Captain Duhon Roth, a noted oh, rogue guy. trader. Yeah, that guy. We got on his bad side. Yeah, what did you do, Ishan? Yeah, a few years back, we found a cache of pirate weapons, which were definitely pirate weapons and not... Uh, Necron weapons? Dram dramatically ironic Necron weapons, right? <laughs> Uh, but we lost them to him in a card game. Then they got swallowed by a warp rift and caused the first Port Aquila massacre. Um, we don't really go around telling everyone that, but he remembers the card game. He remembers it was us, and he doesn't like us. Yeah, you, you paid him back, so he's not out to hurt you actively, but he definitely doesn't like you. Yeah, and he's extraordinarily powerful, so it would be nice to not be on his bad side anymore. So, really, that's what kind of sells us on this. It's, all right, if we can salvage most of this ship and get it back to Roth, maybe he'll forgive us. Yeah, and, I mean, to their credit, right, they are wise enough to not disclose either their route or their cargo to you. So, you don't actually know what they were carrying or how important it is. You're just kind of taking a bet that... 
this is pretty important. Yeah, and also there's the slight possibility that maybe we rescue them and then we find out that we'd rather just keep the cargo. Right, yeah. <laughs> there's, you've always got an option of just screwing them over one more time. <laughs> we don't have to tell him. But very quietly, right. <laughs> so the people who have barricaded themselves in the bridge do seem relatively lucid. They have no idea how long they've actually been there because time is weird in the warp. Um, but, you know, we say, all right, I, I guess we'll board and try to rescue you. Unfortunately, you can't just board and head straight to the bridge. Right, because the majority of this vessel was exposed to raw warp, like raw Empyrean, which is just psychic energy. Uh, to step out into that unguarded in a, in a without a Geller field would basically kill you. Or mutate you into a horrible demon, or, you know, both. Or, or let you get mutated into a horrible demon to be eaten by a larger horrible demon. Awesome. So you've got to tow it out of the warp first, which is not a small job in and of itself. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have just big harpoons that we can fire at it and lodge into the side and, and start towing it away. We do need to actually send on a boarding party, of course. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I think the way you did this is you sort of navigated close enough to it to extend your Geller field into, like, onto the surface of the ship so that you could attach tow cables pull it out of the warp away from the reef without getting yourself stuck. And then once you're in real space in, in the, you know, just normal void, then you can board the ship and figure out, deal with all of the different things that are still happening because a ship that's been bathed in that much psychic energy is going to have these sort of uh, phenomena occurring relatively consistently for some time. Right. When you pull it out of the warp, there's still all that, residue of you know demons which can't exist in real space permanently but we were on the clock right we needed to get in there before basically the crew got eaten the rest of the crew got eaten by those demons because roth would be less happy with a, a ship with an entirely dead crew and you know who knows what would happen to the the cargo yeah, because any demon that was on the ship when you pull it out of the warp is now on the ship when you're in void space, right? That's that's the main problem here. The Geller field can't keep them out any longer. So, of course, we are presented with only one very bad option, which is take a bunch of armsmen, maybe 300 or so, put them on two bulk loaders along with us, and land in the hangar bay and then make our way corridor by corridor to the bridge. In the 41st millennium, you are headed into a dungeon. A dungeon in space. Filled with demons. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. All right, so this week, we're talking about changing the world. Now, this was, uh, we're not really sure, either suggested on Twitter or was inspired by a suggestion on Twitter. So if it was you, please tweet us so that we can actually thank you by name. Yeah, and there are kind of two sides to this topic. Uh, changing the world is a pithy title, not a functional one. So the the first is, if you have a published setting, how do you change canon up front to make it your own? And then the second is, over the course of a campaign, how do you convey to your players that they're impacting the world around them? All right, so let's start with changing the canon of a published setting. Now, there are a couple ways to do this, ranging from really simple and easy to oh my god that's so difficult why didn't i just make my own homebrew setting mm -hmm. 
So I think the easiest way to change Canon up front is to look for places in a setting that have gaps and fill in the gaps. This is much easier with certain settings. The Birthright campaign setting, for example, is specifically designed so that there are many gaps so that you can insert your own countries, your own regents, uh, your own political systems, because the point of the game is to have your players uh, be those characters. Yeah, Eberron does the same thing with the Day of Mourning. You know, when Keith Baker wrote it, he basically said, here are a few ideas that it that could have caused the Day of Mourning, but pick one or make up your own and figure it out from there. Every game will be different. Right. The standard points of light setting in D&D is essentially this. Here's a starting town. There are, you know, 300 people in town. There are a few shops. And there's another town that you know of, mm, like 50 miles away. But in between, who knows? It's right. uncharted wilderness. And I think this is one of the reasons that we don't really like Forgotten Realms is that it's all full. There aren't really gaps to fill anymore. Yeah, yeah. And even where there are gaps, like, on the map. Because ultimately, if you look at any map, you see empty space, you could put something there, right? Put something interesting, it's not a big deal. But it seems like there's so much canon built around Forgotten Realms that to put something in the middle of even, like, an innocuous territory... Like, it would have affected some piece of canon somewhere, and Forgotten Realms has a lot of people that are very devoted to its canon, so it can be very difficult to do that as a GM. Yeah, you're going to have someone upset that you just screwed up the plot of their favorite Ed Greenwood novel. Right. Um, the other thing, it's not just physical places, right? It can also be uh, people. So, for example, everyone knows who the president is, but no one knows all of his top aides and advisors. So you can easily insert your own advisor into, you know, the inner circle. And now even the real world has your twist on its canon. You can do this with ideas or, like you mentioned, the Day of Mourning in Eberron, with mysteries of the setting. Um, oftentimes there are places where a cataclysm happened um, or an, something unexplained, a phenomenon in the woods, a place where people disappear. And the reasons for that are canonically left unsolved. So it's totally up to you what the what the reason for those things are. So then moving on to the next most difficult approach, I would call this sort of the medium, is to develop alternative explanations for existing canon. Um, and, and what this basically does is add a layer of mystery or conspiracy to the facts that the players already know about the setting. Yeah, I think this works really well with players who do know a particular setting very well or a very popular setting. It's more work with something like Forgotten Realms, but you can say, all right, I like there is a book that details everything that has ever happened in Cormier. I'm going to change some things. I'm going to make this person, they're actually lawful evil and possessed. Uh, right. My players don't know that because it doesn't exist anywhere else. So I'm homebrewing one particular element of uh, information that's already canon. And then because of that, you let that influence the direction of the story, right? The way that uh, events unfold in your story is dictated by not that lawful good character who is ruling Cormier, but this possessed, you know, evil entity or possessing evil entity that's secretly ruling Cormier. Yeah, and that makes it relatively easy to make that information fit in existing canon because you're probably just changing one or maybe two things. It's almost like an Elseworlds scenario, you know, those alternate comic book, uh, uh, alternate universes. Mm -hmm. And then that 
doesn't require your players who have already invested a lot of their mental energy over probably years into learning all of uh, this information about a particular setting. They don't have to unlearn all of it. They don't need to read an entire new book in order to get acquainted with a new setting. They just need to go, oh, that's different. Okay, I, I can get behind that. And that that's intriguing. Well, it it might not even be different up front, right? If it's if it's hidden from them up front, then they actually think they're just playing standard and they slowly learn from the campaign what is different about the world. It's also a nice way to handle players who might be metagaming with all the knowledge they have about a setting. Yeah, it it, it can be. Uh, <laughs> it can also be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I prepared for vampires. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, why? What made you think there would be vampires? Because I from thought it was novels? Ravenloft. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I do this a lot uh, within 40k because you guys have a pretty good handle of the broad strokes of canon, and I don't want to touch that. But there are little things about the the canon of 40k that you guys really like, like um, you know, the Inquisition, or, and and that we've kind of developed that in our own sort of our version of 40k, and so I don't want to invalidate that, but I do want to continue to explore it. So I end up kind of. This thing happened, but why did it happen? Well, I know. And you guys will maybe figure it out, or maybe you won't, and that's fine. We'll move on in a different direction. Yeah, that works really well in a setting like 40K that is so uh, lore and especially flavor-heavy. Because in order to really feel like you're playing in this system and in this setting, you need to get into the mindset of 40K. Everything is awful. Everything's always going to be awful. In fact, it's almost absurd like, how bad your luck is going to be. And if you if you changed that, like something fundamental like that, it, it wouldn't feel like we're playing 40K. But you change a few names, you change a planet, you change a chapter of Space Marines, that's totally fine. So then let's talk about hard mode, because I think this is the one that, that most GMs are most interested in, right? Is really putting their spin on a setting versus just sort of um, chewing around the edges of it. Dumb. Don't do that ever. It's the so worst. hard mode is changing the established facts of the setting and retconning the history of the settings so that those facts were always true. This could be somewhat innocuous, like moving timelines, so playing back in time. Um, you know, Technically, that's changing the canon of the setting. But it can also be like fundamental assumptions of the setting are different. Yeah, like switching 40K to Noble Bright. Or, um, like you said, time travel, doing um, anything like Man in the High Castle. You know, what if the Nazis had actually won World War II? You don't actually have to play back during World War II. You can just change... A fundamental assumption of the setting called real life. Right. What if Dracula was a <laughs> was an agent of a underground uh, espionage organization? I don't. I don't think that would ever work. That's too far fetched. <laughs> yeah. No one would ever believe that. <laughs> All right. So if you were going to do this, what are what are the? Can you walk us through the steps? Yeah. I mean, they're relatively simple to stylize but more difficult to sort of follow through on so it's kind of an iterative approach so step one is decide what it is that changed and this is the nazis won world war ii then step two is assess what other important facts in the canon have to change in order to accommodate that truth so spoiler um america is probably not free anymore if the nazis win world war ii yeah it's probably being occupied by the germans 
or the Japanese, or both. Washington, D.C. probably doesn't stand. It certainly isn't a world power and may not even stand as a city. Right. And then you just continue repeating this process, right, of, okay, so I changed this fact. I have determined that Japan and Germany now occupy America. Okay, what does that mean for America? Like you said, D.C. is no longer uh, the capital. America is no longer a single state. What does that mean for national identity? What does that mean for people? Like, how do Americans feel about being occupied for the first time in their history? And then repeat until you get to details that are small enough to not be noticed or difficult enough to change that you probably don't want to even bother. Like, okay, Germany wins World War II. Um, if you take that to the sort of logical butterfly effect conclusion, then no one who's ever actually been born since then probably would have been born, right? But let's just say Elvis still existed and like still did his thing. You know, he just sang in German. Yeah, he sang in German and he wasn't ever in Hawaii. Still loved sausage. Right. He was a very <laughs> mediocre opera singer. <laughs> so there are kind of levers that you can tweak to determine how much work this is going to be. And of course, the more central uh, to a setting the change you're making is, the greater the impact is going to be, and of course, the more work you're going to have to do. Yeah, I, I like this approach more for adding things onto a setting or changing, like you said, those very minute details of a setting to kind of accommodate what the players have created with their characters rather than you know, uh, playing 40K, but the emperor is still alive and well. Yeah, I actually like to use this to get rid of things in a setting. Um, you know, there's often just so much junk because, well, you know, one person's junk is a, another person's best place to set a campaign. But uh, cam published campaigns tend to have so much information so that people can set their game wherever they want, right? Yeah. Uh, and, of course, when I was looking at Eberron and saying, okay, where's the Morning Glory campaign going to go? There was so much info that I knew that we weren't going to get to or that, you know, the party wasn't interested in dealing with. So why juggle that? Why why keep it in place? Like, for example, canonically, Eberron has 13 different moons. Well, 12 moons now. Uh, and each one is in the sky at, at different times. So you need to keep track of 12 different moon phases at all times. Mm -hmm. And I said, OK, I'm going to track a bunch of gods. Um, I'm going to track where the planes are because they also move in rotation uh, in relation to the material plane. I'm not going to bother with the day-to-day -day what phase is the moon. That's just way too complicated. I'm going to drop it. It doesn't exist. Yeah, and because that didn't have any mechanical impact or not a major mechanical impact, that's an well, easy change. To none make. of you is playing a lycanthrope. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the flip side, you know, you have things like uh, the spell plague, which completely changed Forgotten Realms lore for fourth edition. Yeah, and if you think about the reason behind it, it was basically let's get rid of a bunch of details and, and canon so that we can kind of rewrite it or leave some open spaces for players. But people were so attached to it and the destruction seemed to be kind of so haphazard that no one really liked it. Yeah, and, and in sort of a way, it's almost like... Um... It created so much open space that the amount of work to play Forgotten Realms increased for a lot of people because they already knew that lore. And then they had to go. There wasn't even anything to relearn. It was just like, wait, no, I got to make this up. Well, that sucks. Yeah. And 
And one of the issues with published campaigns is that nobody loves everything about a particular campaign setting, but they all love something about it. And when you have something as far reaching as the spell plague, it changed everything in some way. And so Mm -hmm. every single person who played Forgotten Realms looked at that event and said, oh, the thing that I loved is now different. And I don't like that. Like I saw it and I was like, wait, there's no Neverwinter anymore. So what was the point of all that work that all of those characters I played did back in Neverwinter a hundred years ago? Right. The, uh, the one of the two cities that I know by name. Right. (laughs) Great. I I'm down to one city now. And you know, maybe somebody's favorite uh, place is. Never mind. I can't even think of another country. (laughs) Am. That's nobody's. There's no one's favorite. (laughs) (laughs) So I think an interesting thing is happening right now within the Warhammer 40k canon and also has happened now in Warhammer Fantasy with Age of Sigmar. But uh, with the current edition of the tabletop game, they've sort of moved the story forward. Um, It's the Time of Troubles, is that what it's called? the dark imperium the dark imperium right Right. and uh so the cadian gate has fallen and basically the imperium has been split in half and and um you know that that means a lot to 40k people but isn't super important um the point is like you can use the old canon or the new canon but the assumptions that you might have made in the old canon are no longer true now that the cadian gate has fallen because what made that true, like, for example, the Astronomicon that allowed you to navigate the warp, that might be on the other side of the gate. And if that's on the other side of the Imperium, well, now you're in trouble, right? Because your core assumptions of the setting are gone. And if this had been sort of, a, you know, not a published uh, event within the canon, but instead sort of a Game Master's homebrew event, um, you would you would greatly impact the setting and probably lose some players along the way. I mean, they may still lose me because uh, with no Katie and gate, like there's just, there were so many interesting stories to be told there. And also I don't even know how ships work in the warp without the Astronomicon. I don't know. I guess, I guess it'll get explained. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for our game, we certainly won't be updating the canon anytime soon. <laughs> like It would uh, be a pretty big event in your world too. I thought you were just going to blame it on us. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're not wrong. <laughs> All right. So let's say that you have either figured out exactly how much you want to tweak an existing campaign setting, or you've created your, your own. Um, but your players are happy. They're walking around. They're killing monsters. They're looting dungeons. They're, you know, fixing things and making things better or much worse. Now we're in a place where you need to start thinking about how the world changes in response to player actions. The techniques are pretty similar to the ones that you're going to use uh, when you're changing the canon even before people are playing, but you have a lot less control over what is going to happen because you need to react to what the players are doing. Yeah, and I think this is where a lot of GMs get a little overwhelmed sometimes with with what players do um you know you think of it in the context of planning an adventure or something and they do something different and now the adventure has to react but the same thing happens over the course of multiple adventures you know like i thought they were going to do this dungeon and then get this clue and then you know chase down this band of orcs and then find out about this king in a faraway place or whatever and like oh crap they didn't go chase down those orcs they went off in some other direction and now like i am having to react to all of this stuff sort of 
within a week or two, you know, and figuring out what does this mean for my canon and how are these things changing and how do I show that to the players? Yeah, they killed the Goblin King, but he has a backstory and a kingdom to run. Right. (laughs) So not every change has to be that world shattering, though. Uh, And in fact, I think there's a lot of really good techniques that bring players further drawn into your world um, to, to illustrate that and sort of encourage it. Yeah, and a lot of these are just changes that most GMs make in response to player actions at a story level anyway, like introducing new contexts or NPCs into the story. You actually talk to the shopkeeper, um, you haggled with them and got a good deal and they like you, great, uh, crap, now I have to make up a name, but now they are a recurring character because, of course, we got the good deal from that shopkeeper, we're going to go back to them, we're going to ask them for information, we're going to ply them uh, for info with drinks ideally they may even become a friend yeah and and this doesn't have to go both ways you know there's probably a lot of npcs that the players won't remember but it's easy for the npcs to remember the players because one you're the gm so like have the npcs just oh yeah you were you were in here a few weeks ago looking for something for that dungeon crawl how did that go i guess you're alive huh one, two, three. Ooh, mm, missing two, huh? Yeah, what happened to that dumb half-orc that you had with you? <laughs> so another easy thing is to introduce nicknames and titles. This gives the sense that NPCs has, have heard of the players through their reputation. Yeah, whether that's good or bad. I like how if players screw up, especially in sight, of npcs that word gets around town pretty quickly especially like small hamlets where there's nothing else to talk about Mm -hmm. oh it's butterfingers i see okay (laughs) um you know they they might be heralded as heroes you know oh you're the adventurers who solved our goblin problem yeah i think that's very important especially at the end of an arc when the players probably have other rewards right they have more xp um they probably have some loot Uh, some gold so they can buy some things. But it's very important, not just for verisimilitude, but for the feeling of accomplishment for players if NPCs remember their deeds and respond to them in a realistic way, which at low levels is actually going to be almost fawning. You know, like farmer, the gap in power between a farmer and a first level adventurer is a couple years of training. But between a farmer and a third level adventurer, it they're almost a demigod yeah and then also keep in mind that it's not just people who get titles like events get titles too and that can be really cool for players so you know the group of pcs might become known as the kingslayers and and that's a pretty standard sort of fantasy trope but don't forget like the great train robbery happened you know 9-11 is an event that everyone identifies the name of you don't have to have that type of event in your game but still like those events hold sway even if people don't remember all the individuals involved in it or maybe have never even heard of who did it. Right, like the first and second Port Aquila massacres. I'm sure no one knows exactly which rogue trading house was responsible for that because who would even remember that? Right. <laughs> it was probably Roth or the Serenas, I, people assume. I mean, probabilistically speaking, they have probably the most people there, so... If it's, a, if it's a random distribution, yeah, it's probably one of them. Look, the Lionhearts have never done anything of note, so it couldn't have been them. <laughs> well, not those Lionhearts, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
just as events or the party themselves can develop a reputation and a name, so can points on the map. Different areas of land, um, the dismal swamp, uh, different strongholds, which of course the, the PCs may have looted or even built themselves, or different communities. And, and they don't have to have just built and controlled them. You can just give them narrative control to define them, you know, like... You come into this valley and there's a village there. Tell me what you notice about it. Yeah, it's a very dungeon world way of building things. Um, sometimes it's just go- going around in a circle and saying, all right, tell me one more thing. Tell me one more thing. Right. Or it's, let's roll some dice. Uh, but I think this is important because it gives players a piece of the world that they can define for themselves and put their storytelling stamp on. Yeah, it's great when you can get players to invest in creating or helping you to create the lore or um, locations or people because it means that those are important to them which of course means that you can use those as plot hooks slash threaten them and get your players to do things right (laughs) they are a lever that gives you control (laughs) oh orphan it turns out you've uh created an npc for me Excellent. I don't have to resurrect your dead parents. I'll just use these people. (laughs) And then also keep in mind that there are changes to the world that weren't the PCs doing. You know, the world moves on around them. Um, If they leave for a year and come back, things will be different. Yeah, that's one thing that I actually really like about the birthright setting is that no matter what our party does, other... Uh, regions like the rulers of other lands around us also do things and they don't always they're not always doing things that affect us but they are doing things if we visit alamy in in one month and then go back two years later it's very different because they've been working just as hard because of course you know realistic npcs think that they're the center of the story right and then again you know kind of bringing it down to a smaller scale things like you know, they went and cleared out the goblin threat in the hills. Uh, that opened up the mine, and then now there's a road that was built to the village. So it's growing more prosperous because it's easier to have trade now that that goblin threat is resolved. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, best tools a GM has is that power abhors a vacuum. Once the PCs kill anyone who had any sort of leverage, someone else is going to move in and take control of whatever that sphere is. Right. Maybe you get rid of that evil despot, but how much better is the merchant, uh, the merchant council at ruling than he was? Now look, we're slowly moving up the the chain, right? The the great chain of uh, civilization. Right? We right. start out with absolute monarchy, and then we move to like Venice in the 16th century. Eventually, we're going to move on to constitutional monarchy. You just need to keep killing people, kill the merchants. Right, until we all adopt fascism, because it's easier to be the communist that way. (laughs) You know, as long as it's the party in charge. Right. Civilization, (laughs) terrible for shaping your political views. (laughs) What did you name your band of adventurers? Oh, the Communist Party. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing to keep in mind that is easy to tweak on sort of an ongoing basis is the weather. Uh, and seasonal shifts that accompany it. So, you know, things happen in fantasy settings as the the weather turns. You know, you have famines in winter, you have floods in spring. Yeah, and 
when people notice the weather, when NPCs are commenting, not just, oh, it's been particularly hot, but when there are storms coming, when there shouldn't be as many storms, when you know that a, a blizzard is on the way, especially in a fantasy setting or, you know, like high technology, the reason for that is you can't always say, oh, no, that's a fluke of the weather. It could be, oh, crap, here comes a horrible evoker. Right, right. But either way, there's a problem to solve there, right? Mm-hmm. So it gives it gives you immersion in your world, uh, change to your world, but also a plot hook. And that's what we're really driving towards. Right. On pretty much any level, like if your players are, if your characters are high level, then they're going to go fight that storm giant. If they're low level, then they're going to need to deal with the repercussions of the storm that is coming. Right. So that's a, that's a good segue. Um, because once you hit sort of mid to higher levels or greater power levels, the scale of what you impact in the story increases, right? To where you used to just run around trying to scrounge up food to keep the village from starving. Now you go kill the storm giant who is causing the uh, the famine in the first place. So as you do that, right, as those outcomes sort of scale up, what are some themes that we can evoke to inspire change in the setting? Because at that point, it's kind of um, too setting dependent to give general advice, right? Mm-hmm. Well, my favorite is giving the players what they want, which is always, always a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's always it's like the law of unintended consequences. Be careful mm-hmm. what you wish for. Yeah, you know, it's great that they finally got rid of the storm giant that is blocking the pass and was impeding trade. And was also impeding a dragon. Exactly. What was the storm giant keeping at bay? Right. (laughs) He had problems too, man. (laughs) (laughs) He had a full build all prepared. He knew exactly what he was going to multiclass into soon. It's like if you kill King Kallik and then the bill comes due for Boris. (laughs) What? (laughs) What do we do? (laughs) You don't have a thousand people lying around that you can just sacrifice. Right. So he's just going to eat all 10,000 in the city. Yep. <laughs> Heroes. <laughs> <laughs> Heroes in Dark Sun. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that we decided to do? All oh, right, run away. Run away from the problem. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, die trying to kill him and then run away from the problem with the survivors. Well, this does lead us directly to uh, our next theme to remember, which is that conquering is much easier than ruling. We took over the city, but then the problem started. Yeah, we took over the city's problems as well as the city. Yeah, most cities, more problems. Right. (laughs) (laughs) In the immortal words of the notorious in large reduce. Um, And, you know, this is probably a corollary of, you know, be careful what you wish for, right? Uh, Your success is what inevitably leads to the next challenge. Or your failure inevitably leads to the next right. challenge. <laughs> that bad, the storm was coming no matter what. Right. Uh, another theme that makes a lot of sense for some of this to keep the story advancing is um, your success was playing into the villain's plan all along, right? Sort of the mastermind thesis. Uh, yeah, this is the Xanatos Gambit from Gargoyles. It was the villain voiced by Jonathan Frakes, uh, Will Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh Every time anyone thought they had outsmarted him, it turned out 
they were just playing into Xanatos' plan. It's, it's Zinch from 40k. Yeah, or uh, Thrawn had a little bit of this as well in the EU trilogy from Star yeah, Wars. Yeah, it's, ba- it's backwards Batman. Right. Uh, you do want to be a little careful with this, though. If every single time your players succeed at something, it turns out that they just made something worse, then they're just going to stop trying to actually fix any problems. Yeah, you've just invented nihilist characters. <laughs> Uh, one way to break that nihilist cycle is uh, is to introduce the idea of a pyrrhic victory, right? That the cost of success was significantly greater than they intended, um, and and then allow them to deal with the fallout, whether that's emotional or you know the the solving the follow on effects and problems. And you can use this in both directions. The players can technically win, but the cost is is great. There was a lot of scorched earth that they have to deal with now. Or it could be that they they lost, but they still caused so much damage to the villain and their plans. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like you lost, but you cost them enough that you can get a second bite at the apple, right? Like we have, a, we have an opportunity. We've left ourselves an opening to win next time. Yeah, they succeeded in poisoning the village, but... We now have the formula. Right. And then another thing I think that applies in a lot of cases, um, especially like superheroes strikes me or um, even some of the like a Knight's Black Agents kind of thing, defeating the supernatural or existential threat doesn't necessarily solve all the mundane problems. So, you know, just because you have stopped uh, the alien invasion of New York doesn't mean that the kingpin isn't still buying up all the property he can find and slowly twisting the politics of the city to his will right you can defeat dark side but you can't make people be nice to each other right yeah and this is one of the things that i i think makes for example lex luthor such a great villain is that yeah he's a, a big bad and he puts on like this giant suit powered by kryptonite and tries to punch superman until he's dead uh but Man, the guy is really good at city planning and yeah. <laughs> and management. Like he really makes the trains and the planes run on time. Right. The the terrifying power of bureaucracy. <laughs> and average normal people look at a character like Lex Luthor, who is officially the bad guy in the campaign, and go, I mean, yeah, he's got drones surveilling everyone all the time and you can't speak out against him, but I'm really safe. Yeah, he's he's often played as sort of varying degrees of bad, too, in the public perception, right? Like, a lot of times he's just a good guy who's wrong about this thing, as opposed mm-hmm. to inherently evil. I would rather have Lex Luthor as president right now than what we've got. Because <laughs> at least the trains <laughs> would run on time? <laughs> at least he would speak in full sentences. Right. <laughs> So whichever kind of changes you are making to your world, whether it's before you actually play or in the midst in response to your player's actions, uh, I think it's most important to remember that, well, two things. One, that you're the GM, so you can do whatever you want, but be very careful not to bite off more than you can chew. You can always change more later, like after the next session. Uh, it turns out the players have more information and this other thing happened. But it's very hard to dial back a change that you've already told them about. Right. Yeah, and I would just say in conclusion that I think the most intimidating part of changing canon is the fear of being called out by your players 
um, specifically if you don't know the canon as well as they do, right? Like you don't want to violate something. There's an easy technique for that, which is just to nod along and say, you're right. And then don't elaborate and then figure it out later. (laughs) And if it ever comes up, then you have an answer. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You don't know yet. That is um, a, a very difficult like position to put yourself in as a as a GM and especially as a newer GM. But once you kind of get comfortable with like, okay, yeah, I can figure this out. I don't need to know it right now. I don't need to be the smartest in the room at every moment. I can I can fix this, and I trust that I can fix this later. I think you're really empowered to do what you want with established canon and and really put your own spin on things uh, as a group. All right, do you hear that, Ishan? I think thanks to us, that's probably the sound of everybody ripping up their fourth edition Forgotten Realms campaign setting guidebooks. They're useless. They're useless, people. Well, then let's move on to the Character Creation Forge and roll up some fifth edition Forgotten Realms books. No. (laughs) Do we have to? (laughs) Nope, we don't. (laughs) But we do have to roll up something. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sans Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Stone Shaper. Who can literally change the world. Or the earth, I guess. At least the topography. <laughs> Localized topography right around them. So so what is a stone shaper? It's someone who has an intrinsic connection to elemental earth or, or the ground or the land. Um, who specializes in earth and rock spells. It's sort of the land-based version of the pyromancer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, what's the build? Moon Druid 18, Transmuter Wizard 2. So I was pretty sure that we would see Transmuter Wizard in here, because stone shaping does sound an awful lot like transmutation magic, but I am surprised it's only two levels, and I'm surprised we have so much Druid. So, walk me through it, Ishan. Well, Wizard gets you every level one Wizard spell eventually. Right, because you just keep adding them to your book. Exactly. And then, um, you know, awesome utility spells like shield. But at level two, you get the minor alchemy feature, which lets you spend 10 minutes turning a cubic foot of some base material. Uh, That's wood, stone, iron, silver, or copper, I believe, into one of those others for up to an hour. Um, And I think the stone shaper probably either turns stone into something or something into stone. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the level two wizard ability, which has a lot of competition because there are some very powerful abilities that you could get from other wizard subclasses. But I think minor alchemy often gets underestimated because you can take a a rock and turn it into a pound of silver and then buy something and then leave. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Could you you take a door that was less than a foot thick and turn it into, say water and then stick your hand through the hole and unlock it from the other side you can't do water but you can turn to wood and burn it so 
could you take a door that is less than a cubic foot thick and turn it into, say, kindling, then set that on fire and open the lock from the inside by reaching through the door? You totally could. And that's sort of one of my favorite things about this is uh, you can't keep a level two wizard in a jail because you just change one iron bar at a time into wood or stone. Well, you can't keep him in an iron jail, obviously. <laughs> or a stone jail or a wood You can't keep them in... Uh, you can keep them in a gold jail, a jail right. made of gold. <laughs> or like crystal. <laughs> well, well, then you just use shatter. Oh, yeah. I mean, a gold <laughs> jail, you just pull the bars apart. A gold's gym? A gold's... Oh, keep them in a gold's gym. Yeah, no, that's perfect. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just get swirlies all day. <laughs> oh boy! So we're we are this heavy in druid for two reasons. One is that druid gets pretty much every single earth flavored spell that you could possibly think of. Yeah. So like mold earth, meld into stone, stone shape, stone skin, wall of stone, transmute rock, move earth, and of course the wonderful earthquake. But druids also get to wild shape. Now, that doesn't seem like it has that much to do with shaping stone. And it doesn't until level 10. When you can get elemental forms and become an earth elemental. Yeah, which is actually a pretty great combat form. And of course, eventually you're getting to level 18 when you get beast spells, which means you can cast a lot of your spells while you are an earth elemental, which is just sort of ridiculous. Yeah, and you can also get uh, handy abilities like at will alter self, which will hide how earthy and elemental-ish you look. Yeah, because I think we're probably going to go with an earth genasi for this, which lets you uh, cast pass without trace. Um, And you can ignore difficult terrain uh, if it's caused by loose stone or earth. So a lot of your spells are causing that, and you can just walk right over them like they're not in your way because they're not. Yeah, I kind of like the mental image of like as the earth genasi walks across you know like a difficult rubble strewn earth terrain or or mud or something like that the ground sort of reconstitutes itself in front of him (laughs) so every step he takes it becomes solid and then sort of fades away as soon as he walks you know like i kind of like that mental image for a high level earth genasi yeah totally i would probably reflavor almost all their spells as stone flavor. Like when they cast shield, it's probably like an earthen wall popping up in front of them. Yeah, yeah. I think dwarf could also make thematic sense. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, dwarves have also a lot with metal and stone, but from an earth perspective as miners and that kind of thing, I think it makes sense for tunneling and and whatnot. Yeah, and for you power gamers out there, I'll just say for bulg, flavor-wise, kind of works as well because they have such a connection to nature in general. Oh, you just want the wisdom bonus. Yes, that's exactly correct. (laughs) All right. Ishan, who is your stone shaper? My stone shaper is an artist, first and foremost. Um, So certainly she's combat capable, is an amazing spellcaster, you know, has ninth level spells, um, can turn into animals, but doesn't spend that much time in, in animal form, spends, you know, most of her time once she gets to that level in uh, earth elemental form, you know, um, they can also like glide through stone and things like that. And, mm-hmm. and that gives her this perception of stone that it's hard to get as a, a mortal creature. And so she spends most of her downtime fidgeting with 
stone, shaping stone, carving stone, creating sculptures. I love the idea that she can use her spells to, for example, spend maybe 30 minutes turning a big, like a, a, a large piece of wood into stone and then cast stone shape to turn it into a beautiful sculpture. And then after an hour, it turns back into wood. And now you have uh, basically turned a turned wood sculpture. Mm, that is kind of neat. I guess I guess I would pay a premium for that kind of sculpture. Yeah, that's that's awesome. She also probably does crazy stuff like turns into an air elemental, hovers above the ground, and then cast earthquake. You know, whatever. <laughs> it's art. <laughs> I'm making art with your city. This is performance art. <laughs> <laughs> Clap, everybody. <laughs> it's old fashioned street art. I made art out of the streets. <laughs> okay, what about your stone shaper? So my stone shaper is a little more mercenary than yours. He he does it for the gold, for the paycheck. Uh, he works for human mining concerns uh, as a miner doing the tunneling for them so that they can compete against dwarves. You know, all of the mining is the reason that the climate is changing and that the, all these storm giants, they're caused by human activity. Yeah, I know, I know. But he's <laughs> he's an Earth Genasi and he don't care. <laughs> I'll just glide away. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, obviously if you're uh, digging into strange and unknown uh, interiors and underground tunnels and those sorts of things, there are all types of dangerous creatures that live within them. So you wouldn't want to stumble into some caverns or anything like that and be ambushed or attacked. Um, you wouldn't want to accidentally, you know, force out some ground-dwelling goblins and then have them kill you on the way through their their bunk room wall or something like that so um he's got some combat skills to kind of protect himself and and that's how he takes to adventuring yeah i like the idea that the dwarves uh dug too greedily and too deep and found a a balrog a balor and then the the stone shaper just handles it yeah (laughs) (laughs) i punched it till it stopped moving and then it exploded which was fine maybe that's his um Maybe that's his end game. Like in retirement, he'll just take consulting gigs, quality control. <laughs> I'm just here to make sure these are structurally sound tunnels, okay? <laughs> the Gundark Corporation is publicly traded in Baldur's Gate, all right? We have audits. We need to make sure that our investors' money is protected, dwarves. We got to shred the documents. Uh, I shredded the building? Right. <laughs> Earthquake the documents. <laughs> it's faster. Earthquake the inspectors. <laughs> oh my god, let's get out of here. <laughs> okay. Does paper count as wood? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a five-star review. Uh, this is Informative, Useful, Practical by Mumfrey999. The hosts have their format well-polished, and I really enjoy their campaign recaps, especially the Dynasty Unwarranted one currently. The character forge at the end of the episodes is a very well-themed and put-together part of the show, showing how to put together some very specific and cool characters. Well, fine, Mumfrey999. I guess Morning Glory wasn't up to your very high standards. This is the first Which is uh, fair. time that Dynasty Unwarranted was specifically called out as better than Morning Glory, so thank you for the compliment. Uh, it hurts. It hurts a lot. <laughs> it's just better recaps. <laughs> I took I better know. notes. I don't know what you're talking about. I hate these recaps. They're terrible. 
All right. So before we wrap up, uh, we just want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. We have hit the $200 target, so we're working on the Character Creation Forge uh, Codex. Uh, We've got some help coming to create that uh, with us. And somehow we kept marching onward. We're uh, we're almost like $250 a month, which is insane, but I appreciate it so much. Yeah, so I don't know if you have a suggestion for an alternate $300 reward. Let us know. We're totally open to it. And if you'd like to learn more, you can check out those rewards at patreon.com slash total party thrill so what do we have planned for next week's episode we are finishing off the player's handbook and talking about how to play halflings and in the character creation forge we're building the pint-sized punisher well that's it for episode 118 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening 